0: There's this expectation I think people have that Xing a company is like this big celebration, and there's puppies and sunshine and horns and all this stuff. It's not. It's really complicated. There's plenty of good things, and and there's also it's you know effectively a trauma. It's like a kid leaving the house.
1: Welcome to the Cashing Out Podcast, where our fellow founders share real stories and offer honest advice around selling their companies to some of the top acquirers in the world. My name is Todd Sullivan, CEO of ExitWise, where we help business owners create the exits they deserve. Today, my guest is Ryan Vaughn, the founder of VNN Sports, one of the largest marketing platforms in the US for high school sports. Ryan caught the entrepreneurial bug at an early age when he started selling pogs to his classmates in fourth grade. Through the following years of self-discovery as well as trial and error, Ryan raised capital and willed VNN to life. Ryan made the decision to personally exit his business in 2020 and now coaches executives and founders through their entrepreneurial journeys at his latest company, Inside Out Leadership. Today, Ryan and I talk about the resiliency and optimism required for entrepreneurs to build a company against serious headwinds that are often hard to anticipate. We talk about how lonely it can be in the CEO seat when making major decisions that can seriously affect the lives of your family, partners, and employees. And finally, we debate when a founder should personally exit the business to focus on his or her next stage of life and leave part of their entrepreneurial legacy in the hands of others. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Ryan Vaughn. Ryan, thank you so much for doing this. I've just been fired up to talk to you. My fellow founder, a good friend over many, many years, I think people are going to learn a ton about what a founder needs to think about when they go to sell a business or turn the reins over to somebody else, the legacy that you've built, the identity that you have around running a business. I know that's something you struggle with, something I struggle with, something a lot of our clients struggle with. And it sounds like you kind of figuring this out, how founders can make this transition or be conscious about what they're going to go through. So I really believe this is going to be one of the most uh, educational podcasts that we have. I really encourage people to kind of listen to your journey, your advice. To me, this was so important to get out that we had Mark Cuban booked for this spot, and I bumped him to get you on. So thank you for being here.
0: Yeah, naturally, Uh, I'm happy (laughs) to do it.
1: (laughs) Yeah, seriously, this is great, right? Uh, We've known each other for so long. And you know, I remember I was walking the streets of Chicago when you and I kind of got introduced over phone. And I was like, you're in Michigan, I'm in Chicago, and you were looking to fundraise. And there was a guy in Grand Rapids that I knew that I said, oh, you should go call him. Noah, Mike Noah, right? Yeah. And I don't know if that was the very beginning or what. And I didn't know Mike particularly well, but he was, you know, I'd met him and he told me what he was doing. And I'm like, hmm, maybe I could put these two together. And from there, like you went on and built this company that has enormous market share in high school media, right and and then you know the decision is made at some point where it's like, okay, you're gonna go do your next chapter after mm-hmm. what is it 12 years of VNN? Uh,
0: yeah I was I was a CEO in tech companies for 15 years, but I was ten years at VNN, the last ten.
1: That's right. So you had three startups, right?
0: Yep, two before okay. then. Uh, we'll call them progressively larger learning experiences, failures. But you know, I was learning along the way, and then uh, and then DNN was a uh, was a ten year journey. So when they say, you know, startup is a ten year journey, I was a, a perfect example of that.
1: So I think the best thing to do is why don't we start back, right? I know you were. I love your story about selling pogs in like the fourth grade, right? What made you kind of this entrepreneur? Take us up to you know, building VNN, and then maybe we'll start asking a few questions about, you know, that experience.
0: It's interesting, the topic that we're going to talk about today around identity and what happens when you transition away from a leadership role or what happens when you transition away from the company you built. The way that I think about my story and what brought me to entrepreneurship is a lot about identity. And when I look back, I view my life in sort of four chapters. My first vision that I was living into was I was going to be a future NBA player. And so, you know, that meant I played basketball all the time, four hours a day, you know, from I don't know, age six to age 18. And I still play all the time now. But it also meant like I got to get tatted up and stuff because I'm going to go play in the league and, you know, all of that. <laughs> and that chapter of my life lasted as long as my temperament at the time allowed it to. I actually probably had more talent than I, I was able to exercise because when senior year, uh, when it was my team and my time to get recruited and all that stuff, I got in a fight with the coach and quit the team. And I was a you know, a hot-headed cocky guy and and all that, but but for me, that was the shutting of a door on who I thought I was gonna become. And identity was all of a sudden closed to me, and that led to a really big just a, a lot of identity work for an 18-year-old kid to have to deal with. And so that sort of ended the first chapter and, and began the second chapter. The second chapter, I lovingly refer to as my case of the fuck it. And is somewhat in response to no longer having the path to becoming an NBA star. I was pretty frustrated and pretty mad and, and throughout college and then into a couple years after college, just got heavy into drinking, got heavy into drugs. And, and you know that there's a lot of different ways that that path can go. But for me, it went the bad way. Almost died a few times. Uh, Did a couple really short stints in jail as a result of that for DUIs. And I remember the end of that period of time, this was like a whole lifetime worth of drinking and drugs packed into like four or five years. And the end of that period of time, I was, I remember sitting in jail Thinking about this, you know, my middle class upbringing and my parents who thought the world of me and all of the people that I had let down and all that stuff. And um, just how irreparably changed my life had become at that stage. And that luckily was a wake up call. And so at that point, I was dating my girlfriend and now wife who was involved in kind of my my rebuild and was a, just has been a wonderful, wonderful influence on me for many, many years now. But around that time, I got sober and and anybody who's done that, that's like an involved process So I'm not going to go into all of that uh, now. But but uh, I've been sober 16 years now and about a year after I got sober, once I got done drying out, that identity question came up again and it was like, well, okay, so who am I going to be now? And um, I looked around the world and I was like, well, you know what it seems like is the creme de la creme, uh, the people that, you know, everybody wants to be like is tech founders, tech (laughs) CEOs, And so it's like, okay, I'll do that. I'll go, you know, I'll go start a company because that'll really, you know, help people to admire me. And that'll really, that will really feel good. I remember when I was in Chicago,
1: Andrew Mason was on the cover of Forbes magazine. Do you remember that? And it was right around the time we first met and you could tell, right, there was this fever certainly before that in all over silicon valley but when it came to the midwest it was andrew mason on the cover of forbes and that is not an uncommon thing to have thought like what is my next chapter i want to run a tech company right totally
0: totally well and and social network was you know just i mean that came out a couple years afterwards like there's something in the in the air and in the water at that point yep but so once i had again not particularly like Conscious of the pattern that I was uh, operating through, but decided that this is what I wanted to do. Then I went off and built a couple companies and kind of learned on the job. And I've been passionate sports not my whole life, so they were all sports companies. The first three, first two didn't work, and then the third one was um, just a an amazing learning experience in in all the different things not to do, and then a bunch of things that I'm really proud of. Like I remember we grew from 15 people to 75 people in you know seven eight months. And the entire company broke, which is just, that's, that's a, was a rough time and having to redefine and recreate a culture to, to repair all of the damage that that had done when, you know, the people who get it are all of a sudden the vast minority in the organization Mm -hmm. and do all that at a venture speed was a really, really cool example of just some of the really neat things that I got to learn throughout that process. And so then, you know, through Vienna and that was the um, tech CEO was the third chapter. And that ended when I left Vienna and I left Vienna before we exited. We VNN recently exited as well. And, and it was a good exit. Uh, but I actually left prior to that. And and I remember vividly I hired a the replacement CEO for me, a really good guy. He, has, he's, he did a great job with the company after me, but I was not at all prepared for the identity shift that would be required once I stepped away from that as well. And I remember when I first signed the paperwork, like I was all throughout the recruiting process, I was like, cool, this is a good guy. This is going to be amazing. Let's just hustle and and get all this stuff done. And then we're in a board meeting and it wasn't until I signed the paperwork and I signed the paperwork and it was just like a gut punch. And I was like, you know, who I am is the founder of VNM and what life is about is making Vienna as big as it can be and as successful as it can be and like now i'm i am not allowed to be that anymore like oh shit now what am i gonna do and who yeah that was i think it was the combination of that opportunity for liminal space for me which is this really special space after when one thing has ended but before the next thing has begun That also coincided with a particular age when a lot of things happen. You know, um, I'll call like early middle age, you know, mid thirties to to maybe 50. When a lot of that reconciliation and a lot of that thinking happens. And the combination of those two things for me really changed kind of everything. And it's a pattern that I see uh, in the founders that I work with now. I've worked with a, a large number of founders that have gone through exits. And oftentimes it's that level of complexity around not only The identity shift of going from, you know, my identity is this company to to it's not. But also it's, you know, if you do that when you're 30 or 40 or 50, you're reckoning with running out of time also. Um, And what do you want to do with that? So just a whole bunch of really fruitful learnings throughout that process for me.
1: Let me step back a little bit because personally, that story undersells what you were able to do in building VNN. And I feel like I almost had a first row seat into watching this company develop where the market looked to be a large market right but so fragmented that it made it really hard to try to get what you were doing having kind of media for every school in the United States mm. um, every sports team right like you were just having to herd the kittens of cats it was so so difficult and i was building spirit shop at the same time so we were building the stores right and then yeah. and then we're even integrated on VNN so you and i you know, I feel like we're kind of comrades in this effort to try to figure out how do you work through all of this fragmentation to build Mm -hmm. a business that could kind of serve, right? Serve this underserved community or maybe poorly served community or locally served community. And so, you know, I think what you were able to do and what VNN was able to do, it took a long time to get there. But you know, it, it ended up showing remarkable success. And the reason I say it took a long time to get there is what I'm leaning on now is we both took venture capital to build our businesses and we both understand the ramifications of that. And when you take an investor's money, right, you are now on the clock, right? They Mm -hmm. have limited partners to return capital to, and, you know, you're going to get pressure to build in a way that, is uh, to generate the returns that venture wants. And so when you're on the clock and you're building this thing for 10, 12 years, right, it gets really, really difficult to maintain control of what you want to do. Mm-hmm. So I, I just think your story is a really good example that founders need to know about of what, what can happen. How does that relationship with venture change from day one and everybody's like pointing to one point And then, you know, businesses don't get built the way the Excel sheets say. And how do you deal with those relationships while you're building a company? Do you think you could talk a little bit about that evolution of the relationship with VC and maybe how that ended?
0: Yeah, I'd be happy to. And it's a good point. When I think about VNN now, I tend to to think about the, it's interesting. I I notice the challenges that we overcome. That's like the most interesting part to me, looking backwards on it. But we certainly, I mean, we collected this hyper-fragmented high school sports market. I think uh, now VNN represents something like 60% of the market. It's crazy. Um, yeah. And that was, that was a hell of a lot of work and something to, something to be really proud of as well. So yeah, it's amazing thanks legacy,
1: for, Ryan. It's, it's, thanks for it's fantastic,
0: right? You started that. But I think your point around the environment that you step into or the deal that you're signing when you sign on with a venture capitalist is a pretty meaningful one and, and one that I entered into certainly naively and, and changed and sort of impacted a lot of what, what happened after that. So, um, I think as part of the, you know, at the time I was really interested in building something that was big and, you know, going to leave a dent in the universe and that sort of a thing, venture capital just sort of went hand in hand with that or hand in glove. It, it felt like that was the normal way to do things. And I think to some degree, that's still the perception in a lot of, a lot of parts of, of the world. That if you're going to build something that's meaningful, the way to do that is by raising venture capital. Um, but the the primary distinction between a venture capitalist and an entrepreneur, and I think what oftentimes leads to cross, them working at cross purposes, is a venture capitalist has at least 10 bets that they're making, sometimes many more, and they need each one of them to swing as hard as possible for a home run in order to pay for the other nine who are probably going to fail. So they have 10 shots to get this right. And the only way that the math works out is if whatever one wins changes the world and is like a billion dollar exit. Mm -hmm. And so there are an infinite number of really successful businesses that exist between a failure and a billion dollar exit, Mm -hmm. right? There's, I mean, that's 99.999% of businesses And 99.999% of businesses don't fit with venture capital for that reason. Because for a VC, the only success is either you failed, the entrepreneur failed, in which case I'll write them off and I'm not going to spend any more time or it's a billion dollar company. So um, I think it's really wise to enter into that. uh, If you're going to raise venture capital, enter into that knowing that now from my own story and my perspective kind of how, how that impacted the, the growth of the company is, you know, when we first got started and started uh, raising capital, we all, all sudden and done, we raised about $22 million for to capitalize the company. I'd say three quarters. Of that was from VCs. Okay. The first million bucks, a little bit more than that was from angels. And at that stage with angels, all of the different outcomes were still on the table. You know, we could cash flow it. We could do any number of different things. And everybody was, the attitudes were, were, were more online. And when we raised the, our first round of venture, um, we began working with folks who had really different incentives than us, the ones that I described. And almost from day one, actually, before we signed the paperwork, now that I think about it, there was pressure to go bigger, go bigger, go bigger, go bigger. Mm-hmm. Um, so we had a plan, which was already an aggressive plan, but consistently each time we, you know, we would talk to the investors, the pressure was go bigger. How can this be 10 X? How can this da 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 da? Right. And to some degree, I think that's really healthy. It helps the entrepreneur to get outside a the box that they might be in. Um, but it also sets the expectation that that is where we need to be. That's where we need to be aiming is constantly bigger. And for me, it, it definitely gave me the perception that like, if I wasn't aiming that much bigger that something was wrong and I was i was doing it wrong. And the thing about aiming that big is you have to spend a ton of money to aim mm-hmm. that big. And so you have this balance sheet that you've raised, a couple million bucks or whatever it is, if you have a seat around. And, the, and you get a lot of pressure. My experience was I got a lot of pressure from the investors to spend that balance sheet as fast as we could productively. So figure out the biggest possible plan that we could and then spend aggressively against it. When we went into that plan and what happened uh, to us is I think a really common occurrence is when you spend your venture money, then you need more venture money. And so you get on this treadmill of like, we're going to go really big. We're going to spend all this money because we're building, we're in our case, building market share, which we did, but then we're going to need to go back and raise more capital. And early on, I remember talking to many investors and many entrepreneurs. Uh, Our ecosystem in Michigan was still pretty young at the time. We're talking to many people, and they're like, don't worry about dilution. Like, it's, you know what? You just make it a bajillion dollar company and then it's not a problem. And now I look back on it, and I'm like, I very much disagree with that. I think this yeah. is, uh, dilution is, a, is an enormous thing. I learned firsthand through this organization just how much a company can sell for and still not be a great outcome for the founders. Yeah. Because we had a, I think VNN sold for, I don't know. 50 million bucks maybe a little bit more than that um, mm-hmm. and it's not you know that feels like life changing money and it's very much not depending on how much capital you raise along the way and uh, and the way that that looks
1: you talked about you know raising capital and being naive to the venture game. And yeah, we're, we're all gonna start there for sure. And there are places to learn about it. But, you know, we're, we're selling a business, you know, and this is like $100 million business. And we're looking at the cap table right now for a client. And I think it's the first twelve million dollars is going to be swept by yeah. some venture capitalists that came in later that signed a document that gave them, I think it's like three times preference on their money. Oh, ouch! You know, and I asked, and I asked the founder, did they come in pre or post? You know, the post-money valuation. And he is like, oh, I don't know, I don't know when that came in. Okay, well, did they truly participate in the equity? I'm not, I'm not sure. Like, you got a hundred million dollar company here. Right? So it, it's hard to just excel and know everything, but what I would encourage founders is to really understand the documents that they are signing because it gets into the next point of as you are building a company, you're building it presumably for a return on investment, right? Mm-hmm. You might not start out that way. It might be just a, a passion project, but once you take other people's money, it is ROI, return on investment. And you want to understand your personal ROI at every step of the game. Because you raising those first two million bucks, like you said, oh, we could have cash flowed the business. These were angels, they're betting on me. I'm getting to drive the ship the way I see the business growing. And maybe it's year three where you're getting, you know, like a seven million dollar exit and wow, that is you know, Ryan Vaughn celebration time and everybody's happy. And yeah, you didn't shoot for the moon, right? But that was the right thing for VNN and the investor groups that you have. And then you take on the more sophisticated venture capitalists and the game is totally changed. And we hear totally. over and over and over about dilution, right? Their game is to own more of winners, right? Mm -hmm. So you're going to be diluted and diluted and diluted. And for you to maintain your own personal outcome, the hurdles get higher and higher and higher. We have one client, if they take another $50 million, this is a choice that they have, or sell the business, right? Take 50 or sell. And if they take 50, guess what? You got to go five more years, take on a ton more risk, and you're going to end up with three private buyers can buy you, or you got to go public, right? Mm -hmm. So these are enormous odds that you've got to, you know, you got to jump over and yeah, I think I just founders need to be very much aware of dilution to your point. So I didn't mean to interrupt no, you, but I think, you brought I think up some really a, good
0: points. I think it's a, a really important point and also a credit and, and sort of illustrates the importance of the work that you do and educating people around that. But there was a friend of mine that also was building in the, the high school industry or the school more broadly, like a uh, secondary school uh, industry more broadly that was, I don't know, from a revenue perspective, tiny, just a really tiny company. I uh, had built a bit, a bit of technology locally and, and was a friend of mine. we used to go golfing together and, and he sold his company, and I don't remember what the the number was. I think it was sub10 million the sale. It was you know I don't have to work any more money. And it was, it was just an example of the way that that they capitalized the organization left them with so many other options. And one that was like, you know, would have been and in fact was entirely off the table for us. And we were a much larger company, but for them was a a huge win at a much smaller scale. So, yeah, I think it's a it's a rare company that that makes sense to go into the venture capital world. And and generally speaking, you know, if you're going to do that, you want to do it because you're certain that that's that, that you're that type of company.
1: You know, I struggle with the advice to give people here, right? I've taken venture capital in not all the companies, but three of the four that I've built and sold. And so I understand what that is. And today, you know, we're building exit wise and we're not taking anyone's capital. And my partner and I, we have the luxury of, you know, funding the beginning right? So we know how to build a company. We know what it's going to take to, you know, drive real revenue. And then we know how to grow and we don't need outside capital to do that, but it's very right. hard to tell some, you know, 26 year old kid. I, I think I call everyone under 40, a kid now it, <laughs> tell them, no, you got to bootstrap. Right. <sighs> and in fact, Brian just wrote my partner, Brian just wrote an awesome article on bootstrapping, Yeah, but it's like, When you're trying to build that dream and you've got no money, I remember I was just living in the closet of an attic in a fraternity house because I had, we had no money. And so you're willing to sign anything just to have a few dollars to make the moves that you think will help mm. build your company. So I, I'm torn, right? Because we're in, we, we have such privilege today that we will build and continue to build and not take other people's money because of the flexibility that you talk about. And Brian and I talk all the time about what do we really want to build, Right. Mm-hmm. And right now, every answer for us comes from how do we best serve our fellow founders? How mm-hmm. do we shed some light on the black box of MA and the exit, that end of your entrepreneurial journey for as many people as we can. And when we when we, we live there and all our decisions are based on that. And that that that's really fun, but Again, it's really hard for me to tell somebody bootstrap, 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 because you got all the options in the world when you don't know what their starting point truly is. So I I thought that was just important to point out.
0: Totally. Yeah. In general, I try, maybe it's my line of work, but I try to avoid giving advice in general. Yeah. Because every situation is different. And if I look back at the path that I was on and, and everything that it taught me and everything that it allowed me to create on the tail end, I wouldn't change a thing. Um, it just took a lot of pain and a lot of, you know, I think there was, in hindsight, I can see many cases where I, sh- where I if I would have zagged rather than zigging, the outcomes would have been different. And, yeah. you know, that's that's also just kind of part of living and learning. All
1: right. You had this incredible journey, third company. It is the company in the space now it is your legacy. I love kind of the sports analogies. You're obviously, you know, an athlete. And I just remember being in college and seeing all of these athletes come into college and think they're going to play a division one sport, right? They were certainly recruited that way, but there's an injury or they end up like on the scout team or something happens that they are not happy with and they quit their sport. And that moment of, I am no longer Todd Sullivan, the goalie, you know, in college, who am I? Right. And that certainly happened to me. I played one year professionally, but when I ended that, it was like, I think it was the right moment for me. I knew that was I was not going to take it any further. But like, what do you do next? I've been fortunate enough to always know what that next thing is.
0: That's very different than I think the at an identity level. A lot of the work that I do today, I work as an executive coach. I, I started a firm called Inside Out Leadership that works with founders at all stage of the, the founder's journey. And we have coaches that have all been through the founder's journey as well. And a lot of the work that we do ends up having something to do with identity. And you, the way that you describe that is your identity was as an entrepreneur. And then there was the things you were building. Mm-hmm. And that's very different from how my identity worked when I was building VNN, which was I, who I am as the CEO of this company. And so I'm curious, like that level of firewall or, or distinction between who you are as an entrepreneur and the companies that you're building. Did you always have that? Was that something that kind of evolved over time?
1: I think so, because I knew I was pretty good at certain, or I learned that I was pretty good at figuring out product market fit, something new that a consume would resonate with a consumer. And then I was pretty good at figuring out the unit economics, like what does it cost me to build this and what is yeah. a customer willing to, to sell? But what I wasn't great at was scale. And so as these businesses grew, I just really relied on other people. And I saw that CEO title as smoke and mirrors, frankly. I thought the other people were really building these businesses and I was more maybe visionary. Um, I don't love that term. I think there's some like maybe potentially negative connotations to it, but trying to lead into my strengths just to help the overall organization. So I never saw myself as... The shock guy, or the crowd zone guy, the betterfly guy, the spirit shop guy—that was yeah. not me. Now I do look back and go, "Wow, Chris Peterson and I built Betterfly, and Josh Schwadron was the actual original founder of this thing, and we sold it, and Microsoft just bought it. Really cool story, but you know, it doesn't feel like it's really part of me. I think, and I've never put that together, Ryan. So, so yes, I feel my identity is as an entrepreneur. Yeah. Um, my kids ask me, what do I do? And we joke because they're four and six. And her, my wife will say, he's a wheeler and dealer. And I'll say, well, which one do That's you want to be? the definition be? of
0: an entrepreneur. Yeah. A wheeler <laughs> and, and a dealer. A
1: wheeler and a dealer. And, and Sydney will say, I want to be a dealer. And, and Sloan will say, I'll be the wheeler. And they That's think nice. the wheeler is pushing a wheel all day in the backyard. Isn't it? right? That's not what it is. (laughs) Well, uphill, right? Our backyard's a little flat. What we do is it's all uphill, right? So,
0: um, that, yeah, thanks for pulling that out. Right. I actually think there's a lot of, of wisdom in that, that you, you know, intuited at some point throughout your life. But I think that I wouldn't be surprised uh, as I'm sort of sorting through the clients that we've worked with, if the myth, the process of exiting a company hits really different depending on, on where your identity sits. If your identity is tied in with this particular company, you might end up doing something like, you know, trying to break down the doors because they won't let you come back and you have to get a a restraining order or whatever. But uh, I think that's an interesting story. I hadn't heard that, but it doesn't surprise me. Versus if your identity is more as an entrepreneur, then it becomes, you know, there's less work to do. You abstract it a little more and um, then there's less work to do when this part of the identity changes. So I think that's really wise.
1: You know, I think, again, this is not about me, but it's very clear to me that the conversations I take home to the dinner table with my wife and family are about listen to this entrepreneur that I got to talk to today and what they've gone through and the things I was able to draw from my past experience that I think was really helpful, right? You could see the eyes light up, multiple people going, oh my gosh, we're going to be better today because of what we heard from Todd. And then my partners would be like, uh, why don't we ever charge for that? Right. And so the, so the economics behind that kind of education is, you know, not important at all to me. It is this admiration that I have for entrepreneurs and I feel value in what I do, being mm-hmm. able to give value to others. So today, you know, I might say I'm an entrepreneur, but the the purpose is really to
0: elevate other entrepreneurs and it's incredibly rewarding. That it reminds me of my favorite working definition of entrepreneurship is, you know, figuring out a way to get paid to do a thing that makes you the best version of yourself. Hmm. And that's like what you're talking about with the things that you do naturally, the things that light you up. And maybe we don't make money for that now, but figuring out a way to to turn that into a, a, an organization that lets you do the stuff that lights you up. I think that's awesome.
1: Yeah, I mean, that that's that's exit wise today. So let's let's jump back. We had a founder, we sold his business and this was uh, many years ago. Hmm three or four years ago, not many, and he did not know what to do with his life. Now, this was somebody at retirement age,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and he made excuses to go back to the office. One was, uh, you know, I, I really like that painting on the wall, right. It was really special to me. Can I have it? Sure. Sure. You can have it. Um, did I get any mail today? No, nothing. Um, I think I left something in the safe and it was day after day after day to the point where it was, Hey, why is that door swinging in when safety code says it can only swing out? And to the point where they could not get him to stop coming back to work. And a cease and desist was not actually issued, but it was you know threatened. And so when we saw that, we said, we need to educate our founders around what are they going to do next? Now, mm-hmm. that person has all the money in the world, so it is not a money issue. But the approach we take is to tell founders, if let's predict what kind of capital you're going to have at the end of this based on what ownership you have of your company and what the tax consequences are going to look like what are you going to do with this capital and what we actually first start with is what do you want to do after the transaction is it buy another business put my kids through college yep. you know buy a ski house what are you going to do next and then we say okay is that all possible with the financial outcome that you're going to have? And then if it's yes, it's like, okay, you know, start thinking about this. You can't take your eye off the ball of building your business. And in many cases, you're gonna go work for that company for the next two or three years. But just having an understanding of starting to be able to make a mental shift, know that you can make a mental shift into this next phase of your professional life, and sometimes it's personal life, we find is important. I don't have the answers here, Ryan. And yeah, that's why I was excited to talk is like, is, can you share yeah. more than, than giving you a private, a wealth management plan? Right. Cause that's essentially what we're doing.
0: Yeah. I think, I mean, that's a big part of it, right? It's definitely not all of it, but that's certainly a, uh, that's certainly a part of it because you're, you're solving very different problems on the other side of that than, than you would have been otherwise. You know, I find that some people, when they exit their company, and it's interesting, you, you sort of asked like you, or you said you start with the question, what do you want to do after this? Right. And I think some people know that and, and that whatever their answer is to that question uh, stays the same after the end of the exit. Maybe some people have like some percentage of people have that continuity and that ability to do that. In my experience, a lot of people don't. And a lot of people, they may think that this is what I'm going to do, but the experience of exiting the company ends up feeling really different than they expected there's this expectation I think people have that exiting a company is like this big celebration and there's puppies and sunshine and horns and all the stuff. It's not, it's really complicated. There's plenty of good things. And, and there's also, it's, you know, effectively a trauma. It's like a kid leaving the house and that's sort of combined or, or exacerbated by the fact that, um, You know, you mentioned the idea of privilege earlier, like we're talking about a group of people who are very privileged to have the opportunity Mm -hmm. to have this conversation and to, um, to exit a business. And that can lead to a feeling like, well, I can't talk about this pain because I'm so lucky. Right. So I'm going Mm -hmm. through this big, this big challenge, um, this big, you know, identity shift or existential existential stuff that, that, that feels really painful to me. But if I talk about it to anybody else, they're just going to think I'm like this entitled narcissistic asshole. Right. And so you end up kind of holding it in a way that that is generally unhealthy and, and probably more so than you do in other areas. But I do think there, you know, in the, in the folks that we've worked with, there are definitely some patterns in terms of of what happens at that stage when it's not so clear. And so my, my first advice would be that if it is clear to you on the other side of what you want to do, and if when you exit the organization that still feels clear and it still feels fulfilling to do whatever it was that you had set out to do. The next thing, then do it absolutely, hundred percent. Just run after that thing, and you know, continue on the path that 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 makes the most sense to you. And I think that's it's as simple as that. Like if it's clear, run. And I think in many cases, when it's not, that's when it gets it gets a little more complicated. So in the case where. That is either not clear what comes next or that changes along the way. Like the, the process of exiting feels more disorienting than than was expected. And, and that, that clarity isn't there. Uh, a good example is for me, you know, immediately after leaving my company, my first reaction right away was I'm going to start another company. No question. And I did. I started another company right after. And then it didn't take me very long to realize that, like, I actually don't want to do that like it feels really normal. The muscle memory is there. Like I want to, you know, it feels like the easiest thing to do would be to start another company, but I don't think that's what I want to do. And for me, uh, it felt like I had been running for so long to build this, you know, build this big thing and try to, you know, become a big deal in some way and build something that mattered. And having done that a bunch of times, the thought of, you know, after the, after the exit, the thought of, going back and like trying to go bigger just felt like it's not going to feel any different. Even if I go bigger, like it's not, you know, I I can't imagine a bigger exit feeling, you know, changing the feeling inside of me that that didn't feel content with the first one. And so that caused me to kind of reevaluate the way that I approached it. And instead of just immediately jumping back in and going to the next one, really look internally at if I'm running my ass off and I'm not running towards something, well, I must be running from something. And if that's the case, then what is it and how do I figure that out? So I sort of, you know, backed my way into a lot of this, this transition process post exit that I'll describe in a second, mm-hmm. just by getting off of the treadmill. And, and um, I had a chance to work with some really awesome teachers and coaches who, who helped me to understand myself a little bit better. But what happened in my case and, and, and what happens in many cases with leaders is the first exit, first meaningful exit often happens around mid-30s-ish, um, just based on the timeline of things. And certainly the type of exit, mid-30s to, to early 40s, the exits that become complicated often become complicated because it's not only an exit from this organization, but it's also you're entering into the, the midlife process, for a human being. Mm -hmm. And the midlife process is, you know, I've heard it called a midlife crisis. I've heard it called a midlife unraveling. Brené Brown has this awesome article called a midlife unraveling that I think is brilliant. It had me crying on my porch at one point as I was, uh, as I was going through this process, but, but that process works differently for an entrepreneur because for, you know, most people that aren't entrepreneurs, those types of big questions around who am I and what am I going to do with my life? Are asked and answered ongoingly. It's kind of yeah. I'll ask it you know a little bit on in February and then I might you know do it again in July, and I'll just kind of continually you know moderate myself and and and, um, and make sure that I'm aimed correctly. But for an entrepreneur, typically what happens is those answers are incredibly clear. Like for me, it was who I am as the CEO of Vienna and the role of my life is make this thing successful. And then that's the answer to the existential question when I'm 25. And it never is reevaluated until I'm 35 As it's just very clear. Just go after this, this, um, this thing. And so when you finally exit the organization, if you're in that period of life, all of that shit comes back all at once. And it's like, Oh my goodness. Now I have to rethink all of these things that everybody else has been doing piecemeal. I got to do it all at once. So I have a lot of empathy for the entrepreneurs that, that exit companies and have that, that, uh, that process. And What we've found in doing this now a a number of times and and working with folks is that there's two big, typically two big um, identity shifts that happen in that period of time that often coincide with an exit. And the first one of those is a shift from uh, the way that we define and create our identity from initially being one of acquisition to being one of expression. And I think this is you know there's shades of this in the way that you talk about your current business versus previous ones. So acquisition to expression the The first phase of of life, and for many entrepreneurs, the first company, maybe the first couple companies, is the way that we that we create our identity is by acquiring things from the outside. We acquire a role. We acquire the notoriety that comes with this company. We acquire, you know, the guy who won this and the guy who raised this and like all of the different things that we do, we kind of glom those onto ourselves to create our sense of self. So our sense of self is created as a, as a mechanism of all the shit that we've done, all the stuff we've accomplished, Da da da, da, da right? So our identity is acquired based on those things that we do. And for many people, what we find is that there's a limit to that. You get to a point where you've acquired enough that it's like, well, I don't know. Do I really want to just make my whole life about getting the next thing, whatever that is? And so then, the, then there's a shift, which sometimes is quick, sometimes is really painful, um, which shifts into expression. And that is rather than acquiring things from the outside and, and glomming them onto ourselves to create ourselves, we determine who we are at a really deep level on the inside and work becomes a, a, an act of expressing who we are deeply into the world. Um, And so companies that come from that place are created really differently. They're not about typically, they're not about let's build a big den in the universe. They're about who am I and what do I have to uniquely contribute to this world? Mm -hmm. And how do I build an organization around that? So one shift to pay attention to if you're if you're um, in an exit and it's not a really easy, this is what's next, is that shift from acquisition to to expression Another way of thinking about that is people wrestle with purpose. And, and in the first part of life, you find your purpose, like you're picking it off of a menu. And in the second half of life, you have to create it. And so that's a, that's one meaningful shift. And the other meaningful shift that we often see uh, for entrepreneurs in this, in this particular phase around the exit is a shift from their identity being defined as an individual to their identity being defined as a collective. And the collective can be you know, family, it can be community, it can be any number of different things. You can kind of define that in, um, in different ways, but oftentimes, you know, in, in this special space with an exit, which is really just an opportunity to make change to yourself. Right. Uh, people start to reevaluate, you know, the, uh, I'm, I'm building all of these things and I'm, I'm building this, this organization or these companies to serve my life, myself, versus to serve myself but myself now includes my kids it now includes the people in my community it includes you know some of the um, yep. the other people around me yeah so for me the the example of that was i remember early on in my career with with vnn and the previous companies the goal was you know build something that's going to reach 100 million people some version of that there's this big massive number mm-hmm. of you know, in essence, like a number on a computer screen, I, there's no way of even reconciling with hundred million people really in my mind, but post exit and the work that, that I do now, and, and I see this in even larger organizations as well. I end up looking much more toward how do I serve those folks that are in my community that are, that I care about, not necessarily the world. Some people think like that, um, but much more like me as a sense of this whole, this broader sense of, of identity
1: as community. Ryan, this is great. I feel like this is like a personal therapy session. Uh, so thank you. I hope I know our listeners are going to get a ton out of that. And, you know, I think of my community as my fellow founders, my, Mm. uh, fellow business owners. Right. And so hearing you say that things are resonating of why, you know, we do what we do at exit wise and why we enjoy it so much. Cause we do feel like it is serving a community that we feel so close to and a responsibility, frankly, to help. And I, I think you've put it in a way that I hadn't really thought about it before. So personally, thank you. You're and I know, I know like people are going to get a lot out of this. What I would say is, is there another piece of advice that you might give to founders that are, they're going to exit and, 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 Here's here's one of the problems that we see very frequently is our investment bankers have come in and the better the best in the world in your industry and they are serving up the best possible offer for your business and founders are like oh is that really that is that it is that should I accept this I don't know what to do and they get incredibly indecisive. And I tend to think it is not about the money because the outcomes that we are delivering are 30% above market, right? Well above what founders commit to before they start working with us. And so it can't be the numbers, but it has to be something emotional, right? And in an exit for a founder, there's an amazing translation that has to happen, emotion to finance. And so... I'm really wondering what piece of advice you could give these founders that are at the goal line, recognizing that their lives are going to change financially, certainly positively, professionally, maybe positively, but then like personally, it's, you know, who knows? And I know the work that you do, and I understand some of the effective therapy being that you're bringing multiple people together that are facing these issues at the same time. And when you put those people in a room and they recognize it's okay to feel this way and ask these questions, then the dialogue opens and people come to their solutions and they can share those solutions. And so I guess what I'm taking from you is not only should somebody find inside out leadership or some equivalent in their community um, to talk about these things, because maybe just talking about them is going to be enormously helpful to allow you to make the decisions in an area where you're comfortable and know that the future is not kind of this scary mystery.
0: So yes, hundred percent. And I think it goes beyond just talking to people. I think it's talking to your peers. And I think that's a meaning. There's a meaningful difference between that and your spouse that and your friends and so one of the things that, as I was going through my journey, the, the things that was probably one of the most useful things is I created these things called Founders Dinners. I just brought a whole bunch of exited founders together and we, we would share stories and we would talk about what this process was like. And just the, you know to, to what you were just saying, the, the, the act of seeing really successful people talking about how complicated that process was made it a lot easier for it to be complicated for me too. Um, and so, uh, you know, some of the work that we do now is in creating CEO groups. And so we'll bring together CEOs at various stages and, and, you know, enable them to support each other through, through various things, not just the exit, but definitely including the exit. And I think, you know, anytime humans don't necessarily, uh, we are wired to avoid uncertainty. It's kind of, you know, back in the day when, uh, from an evolutionary perspective, It's a bad idea to go walking in the woods when you don't know if there are tigers and snakes and all this other stuff there. So you just generally stay away from there unless there's a reason to, right? And so we have a, for a very good reason, humans have an evolutionary bias away from uncertainty. And as entrepreneurs, we tend to maybe have a little bit less of that. We tend to, to sort of lean more into uncertainty, but even for the entrepreneurs who are the most gung ho, when you're confronting something like an ending like an exit. That's a level of uncertainty. What comes after that, that can be really scary. And so I think it's also useful just to recognize that that hesitation at that very end is a natural a really normal reaction to uncertainty that other people feel with much less uncertainty, but you know, we're not invincible to it. We're not immune to it. And we're going to feel it sometimes too. And so again, you know, understanding what's going on can be a huge part of not necessarily like exiting the company that's fantastic if that's what you want but just like really reckoning with really what do you want not the fear that has you want to like avoid change Mm -hmm. um but but ultimately making a conscious decision around is this the end of this chapter am I ready to go to my next growth uh my next opportunity for growth uh or is there still something for me to do here
1: Ryan, I think that's perfect. I think we should tie it up there. I want to be respectful of your time. I really appreciate uh, you doing this. Me too, this is, man. This, this is, great is to catch up. I know this is fantastic. I, th- you know, I don't ask this question at the end, but it just feels kind of appropriate. I don't ask it for everybody, but is is there one person that you would like to thank that really contributed to the professional and the professional success that you've had? right? I mean, you, you, this, this was an incredible journey and you're you still in the middle of it, but anyone that you'd like to thank?
0: Uh, yes, my wife, no question. Uh, I think not only the WIFIO moments, the moments where, you know, I was, for, WIFIO is an acronym that stands for we're fucked. It's over. Um, <laughs> and successful companies in theory have five of those. I've certainly had more than five, but not only like, like being that that rock, that source of stability amidst all of those ups and downs throughout that whole period of time, and just being a, a, a wonderful human being, but also I mean in a really real sense uh, through her uh, efforts, both you know professionally and financially enabling somebody who had a really hectic early career to make that happen right you need somebody with a steady job to be able to make that work when I think about like the person that is the most impactful to my to the success that I've had and the success that hopefully i will continue to have. Uh, it's, it's no question It's Laura. So thank you, Laura. If you listen to this, well <laughs> you. Thank you, Laura. <laughs> <laughs> Ryan, this is, this is great. Thanks very much. I appreciate it. Yeah, you too. Thanks for having me.
1: Thanks again for listening to the cashing out podcast for more founder exit stories, please subscribe to the cashing out podcast on Apple iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And please remember, exitwise.com and the Cashing Out podcast are for entertainment purposes only. This should not be relied upon as the basis for investment decisions.